And this is Dan. Together we pastor Hope Culture Church in Elgin, Illinois. Thanks for tuning in to this week's podcast. We hope it encourages you and inspires you. Here's today's message. We're starting a brand new series on Galatians. Uh, it's a book of the Bible in the New Testament. I'm excited about it. It is a important one. They're all important. But um, a lot of people rank this one very highly. It's like up there with Romans. Um, with the Protestant Reformation and the part of the church that, that we are as a result of what happened over 500 years ago is a largely part of Galatians and Romans and the influence that had on people like Martin Luther and, and some of the people after him. So Romans is all about what the gospel is. Galatians is all about what the gospel is not. It's more of the defense of, hey, this is, this is not part of the gospel. Uh, and so they go together very, very well. And, you know, Galatians is a book of freedom. Uh, does anybody need more freedom in their life, in their Christian walk? Um, it's a book about those things that were just on the screen, love and joy and peace and all the things that come with life in the Spirit. It's really a book about grace. And grace is one of those things that you never outgrow. It's one of those things as a Christian that's foundational, but it's also not just like the basics. It's, it's, it's all of it. It's all grace the whole time. And so the good news about grace is that hits us all. It hits the person who doesn't think they need it and are self-righteous, the legalist, the one who thinks they're performing very well for God. In fact, that's largely who this book's written for. But it also hits all of us who, who view ourselves as less than, or we messed up, or we made a mess of things, or we view ourselves as prodigals or still finding our way back. Anywhere on that spectrum, grace is for you. And so I want to give a little context as we start this series, because it's a long one. We're going to be in Galatians for the next 10 weeks. We're going to be going slowly, steady through the book, and uh, we're going to cover a lot of ground today, because my favorite parts of the book are the later parts of the book, so... That's the, what I get to do when I'm up here. I'd be like, we're going to go fast in the beginning and slow at the end. Uh, so we're going to cover all of chapter one, and there's only six <laughs> chapters. Um, but that's just, that's what we're doing. There's 149 verses. It takes about 20 minutes to read. You can do this. I want you to read it a few times, maybe spend some time this week reading it. We're going over it in our small groups. So even if you just go at the pace of your small group reading that every week, it's going to make a difference. The Word of God is living and active. Um, but who are the Galatians? We're going to see in a second here, Paul's like, to the Galatians, to the church in Galatia. Uh, it's actually a group of people um, from what was called Gaul, which is modern-day France, and they migrated into Asia Minor. Uh, they moved into the area that would be modern-day Turkey. And so at first, it was just a little area, and it was these people from Gaul, and they were called the Galatians. Uh, when the Roman Empire took over and kind of rearranged territories and provinces, they made it an even bigger area. Uh, it became a larger area. And Paul, who many of you are, are aware of, he's the guy who wrote a lot of the New Testament. We talk about him a lot. Um, he went on a missionary journey, three of them. And on the first one, you can read about this in Acts. If you're like, I want to dig in, I want to go deeper, read Acts 13 and 14. You'll actually see when he went and planted these churches. But he planted some churches in the area raised them up, raised up some leaders, and then went on to plant more churches. Well, he got news that the churches weren't going in the way that he wanted them to go, and it upset him. He starts the letter differently than he starts most of them. He starts out a little bit more serious, um, and I can't help but empathize with that. Like if, you know, Abigail and I spent another five years here, and then if God called us somewhere else, which we don't ever plan on having happen, but if he does, we're going to follow— and we left, and then all of a sudden, there was somebody who came and started teaching something that was contradictory to the truth and the Word of God. We would be like, hey, guys, 
That's not, that's not right. And so that's what Galatians is. Galatians is a letter of Paul responding and saying, hey, what you're hearing is not true. It's a defense of the gospel saying that is not part of the good news of Jesus. People have added things to it. These people called the Judaizers who get a really bad rap, but it would be really easy to understand how they got to be how they were and who they were, started saying you actually have to add some things to Jesus. Jesus is good, but there's, there's other things you need to do with it if you want to follow God. There's some other aspects, specifically like circumcision is really important, what you eat, the days of the week, the holidays, the Sabbath, all those things. Those are, we still have to do that in order to follow Jesus properly. And so that's what Paul is writing to confront. I was reading seven or eight different commentaries this week, and one of them from N.T. Wright, he uses the illustration of if somebody built a foundation and started a building plan, and had this idea in a very segregated area to have everybody together, where everybody would come in one entrance, black, white, anybody, any color, anything. They're, they're all coming in one entrance, and they sit together, and the foundation is laid, but the builder has to go on to another project, and then other builders come in and continue the project, but they, they change the, the plan. They're like, he didn't really know what he was doing. The foundation that he built, like he didn't have the authority to do that. And that's what the people do. The Judaizers actually come in and say, Paul didn't have the authority to say what he's saying. So Paul comes back, and he, he doesn't even have to just build his case saying, this is the true gospel. First, he has to defend, this is why you should listen to me. This is why you should trust my authority and not what they're saying. So that is largely chapter 1 and into chapter 2. So today, as we actually dive into Galatians and get it started, we're going to see Paul laying out the defense of why people should trust him and what he says the gospel is and what he says it's not. So let's jump in. Chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men or by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers and sisters with me. So first, right off the gate, he's kind of laying the foundation of, I'm not even chosen by people. God chose me. He was the one who sent me. He's the one who empowered me into ministry. And I've got other people with me who can confirm it. He's like, I'm coming. Like, my, they're going to back me up. I've got other people. And he says, to the churches in Galatia, grace and peace to you. Grace and peace. That becomes his theme. He kind of starts the book that way and ends it that way. From the God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So right out of the bat, the part we usually skip when we're reading the epistles, you know, when Paul's like, hi, everybody, he's saying, guys, I'm sent by God, and I have other people to back it up, and this is the gospel. Within five verses, he's already laying it out. He's saying, God sent Jesus, he gave himself for our sins to rescue us salvation, to save us. Jesus gave himself. He's alluding to atonement. He's alluding to the idea that Jesus paid the price for what we deserved. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, cheap grace is the mortal enemy of our church. Cheap grace is the mortal enemy of our church. He said, our struggle today is for costly grace. We need to understand the price that was paid for our salvation. We need to understand what grace costs. It's free to us, but it cost him his life. Paul says, grace and peace to you. He wants us to understand from the beginning that this is going to be about grace and that, in fact, he's offering grace even in his greeting. 
He's inviting them back in to grace. Grace is always the way forward. If you're confused, where do I go in my Christian life? What is the next step forward? It's always going back to grace, going back to the cross, going back to the freedom we have and the forgiveness we've received. It's a great reminder to all of us. Paul's shocked. He says in verse 6, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting. And if you've read Ephesians or Philippians or Colossians or any of these other books that Paul's written, he's usually like, I've heard you're doing this really well, or I'm excited to greet you. I've been praying for you. I can't wait to see you. Something positive before he gets into, I've also heard you've been doing some weird stuff. But he doesn't do that with this one. He goes straight into it. It would be like if you've ever had that meeting where you walk in and your boss is just like, their demeanor is different. You're like, oh, this is not going to be good. Or even if I started and I just was a lot more intense. Like, it's just from the beginning, you're picturing this would have been brought to the Galatian church and read out loud. They would know Paul is serious. He's not messing around. He's astonished that they are so quickly deserting the one who called you to live in the grace of Christ and turning to a different gospel. Verse 7 says, which really is no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. He's shocked. He's like, how? I laid the foundation. We, we, I planted the church. I started it. I told you guys. I taught you the gospel. I taught you the good news of Christ. I taught you the freedom and the grace. How did you quickly get off? How did you turn to a different gospel? Then he's like, there is no other gospel. It's just what you think is another gospel. It's not even true at all. Some people are throwing you into confusion and trying to pervert the gospel. If you like word studies or you know how to do one, if you have a concordance or something, look up later this week that word, the Greek word that we translate in English as pervert. It really means to reverse. It means the opposite of. It means to totally change the direction of it. And he's saying what... What happened is because of your confusion and the people that uh, were teaching it, they've actually reversed the gospel. What you came into freely by grace, you're now walking back out of. You're walking out of that free place of grace. He's saying you're deserting the one who called you to live in grace. We're called to live in grace. Grace is the place that we stand before Christ and allow him to change us. It's the place that we stand in relationship. It's the place that we stand empowered by the Spirit. But as soon as we step out of grace by trying to earn something or do something or prove something to God, we're actually reversing the truth and work of the gospel in our own life. In verse 8, he says, But even if I or if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. You see how intense he is? He's like starting out, like no holding back. As you've already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. He's shocked. He's like, don't let anyone convince you otherwise. Grace is where you stay. It's where you start. It's where you finish. In his other letters, he talks about in the same way you received Christ, so walk in him. It's all by grace through faith. There is nothing that we add. I think sometimes we're like, what do we bring to the table of salvation? What do we bring to the table of reconciliation to God? What you bring is all of your mistakes. That is your contribution to the gospel. All of the ways that you've fallen short. 
Theologians throughout time have said Jesus plus nothing equals salvation. But as soon as you change the equation and add something, Jesus plus anything else equals nothing now. It's no longer the gospel. It's a distortion of it. It's actually a reversal of it. It's no longer free grace. It feels, that feels hard for us to grasp because in our culture, there is no such thing as free. You know, we, we just know that there's strings attached or there's something behind it or there's something else to it. And so we can't help but read that into our understanding of the gospel because we're so surrounded by it. Like, how could it actually be free? How could he actually forgive me? And even in that moment, as I've been studying, I'm just reminded once again how much I'm in need of the grace of God. Because we do something. The longer we follow Christ, some of us have been taking our next step following Jesus for years. And so we've subtly convinced ourselves that I'm doing pretty good. He's actually, he's probably glad he picked me now. You know, he like, I, I kind of earned it at this point, right? Like I proved myself and, and see what that is. It's the same thing. It's the reversal of the gospel. He is glad he picked you. But he's not glad he picked you because of what you were going to someday do. He just picked you because he loved you. His grace is free. It's the place where we're supposed to stay. But what happens is as soon as confusion enters or trouble enters, our souls get troubled. It says that they brought confusion. As soon as that happens and, and truth gets distorted, we start to lose perspective. Paul has this divine jealousy in, in a different letter to a different church, he's writing to the Corinthians in his second letter to them. He describes his relationship with them as a jealous husband. That's how he feels about the people God has entrusted to him. So he, that's why he's so passionate. He's like, how could you believe this? And he's fired up. He's like, you can't. You have to come back just to the simplicity of the gospel. That it's just grace. There's nothing else you can add to it. And, and then he goes on and makes a, a turn in the letter. It's kind of surprising if you're just reading it straight through in chapter 1, all of a sudden he's talking about people-pleasing. And this is verse 10. Am I now trying to win the approval of human beings or of God? Or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. I, I was tempted to preach the whole message just on this verse. But I was like, no, we got to get farther because I want to slow down later in the book. And so this verse... I love it because it actually doesn't just say that people-pleasing is something you should work on. It actually says when you live in the place of, of seeking favor and approval from others, you're no longer actually able to be a servant of God because they're at odds. You can only seek ultimate approval from, from one person because at some point they're going to be contradictory. He's saying you can't just look for the approval of others because at some point that's going to lead you to do something contrary to what God's asking. But if you're looking for approval from God, you're going to upset some people. We all struggle with this. We struggle with people-pleasing. It's something that we regularly have to work on and put to death throughout our life. There's a guy who um, was an opera writer. Not big into opera, but it's a good illustration. So I'm going to use it. His name is Verdi. And when he first wrote his very first opera, uh, it was to open in Florence. And it's filled. The room is packed. And he stood by himself in the shadows and wasn't looking at the crowd, wasn't looking at the response. He was looking at one person. There was another famous composer there. And he just wanted the approval of him. He wanted to know that his opera was good enough that it pleased the one person. 
He ignored everybody else in the room. And that's how we're called to live our life, for an audience of one. God, I care what you think more than anything else, more than everyone else. But that's hard. We're interacting with people all the time. We care. We want them to like us. We want them to care about it. And Paul's making the point that, hey, you actually can't do both fully. You can either just look for the approval of people or just look for the approval of God. And there's times where there's an overlap, but they're going to also contradict at other times. People-pleasing can cause us to get off track. And the reason Paul makes this argument is that that is what was happening in that church. They were starting to look for the approval of some of these other leaders. And he's saying, and Paul's using himself as an example. He's saying, I'm not doing that. Look at the letter I'm writing. Look at the life I'm living. It's, not, it's been costly. It's not easy, but I'm looking for the approval of God. And he uses that to launch into his argument of why they should trust him. Because knowing Paul, you kind of think he would move into theology here. He'd be like, this is why you should trust the atonement. This is why it's only grace. And he gets there later in chapter 2 and 3 and then talks about the practical implications of that for our life in 5 and 6. But he spends a long time just laying the foundation of why they should trust him. And what he does is he doesn't go to the message. He doesn't go to doctrine. He goes to his own life. And I was reflecting on this, and I was thinking how, how interrelated the message and the messenger is. How easy it is that when we don't trust the person sharing the message, we don't trust the message. Some of us have experienced that, where, where you know, the, the person who was delivering the message was no longer trustworthy, and then it made us question everything. Because that was part of the foundation. And that's, that's something that I want us to reflect on. I want us to think about as individuals. Is we're all called to share the gospel. We're all called to represent Jesus. And our lives actually matter. People are watching. I would say that you are your best argument. That you are your best defense of the gospel. The way that it's changed you, the way that you think differently and live differently. It doesn't mean your words don't matter anymore. It doesn't mean you don't have the conversation. In fact, you have to. Romans 10 says, how will they know unless somebody shares? But it also means you can't just share and live contrary to the gospel. You have to have allowed it to change you from the inside out. And nobody's perfect, but are you moving? Are you taking your next step in following Jesus? So Paul defends his character here. He's saying, what I've done is of pure motive. I'm, I'm living for an audience of one, of Christ. He doesn't stand to gain anything. He's, he's saying, you can trust me. You can trust my message. He says, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, this is verse 11, that the gospel I preached is not of human origin. I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it. Rather, I received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. He's like, this wasn't something that was a result of a great brainstorming session or a creative meeting. I didn't learn it in school. I didn't watch a video on YouTube. It's none of these things. Paul's saying, I got this directly from Christ. Many of you know, if you've read the New Testament, that Paul had an encounter with God. He had a moment that on the Damascus road where Jesus shows up and speaks to him and there's the light and he's blinded and he has an encounter. We even mentioned this last week, how he had both an education and an encounter, and we all need that. We need to understand the theology and the word and the truth, but we also need to experience Christ and who he is. So Paul is saying, remember, I have a revelation from the Lord. And then he goes on to talk about his past. You've heard my previous 
way of life in, in Judaism. How intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. He's like, remember guys, I actively fought against the church. I persecuted it. I was actually trying to destroy the Christian movement. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my father. Paul was well-educated. He grew up in a good area. He grew up in Tarsus, which would have been one of the best places for him to get an education. We know he did well in school. That means he had a lot of the Old Testament memorized, committed to memory. He could quote other people without looking it up. He was also a Roman citizen, and he taught under uh, Gamaliel, who we know from the New Testament. So he had a great rabbi teacher. He's well-educated. He has all of this stuff going for him. And he's like, with all that education, I actively was fighting against the church. I hated it. I wanted to destroy it. He's like, don't forget, that's part of my story. He was sincere in his belief, but he was sincerely wrong. I think that's a good reminder for us, too, that just because you believe something passionately doesn't make it true. He was like, no, I was actively trying to destroy the church. But then he had an encounter with Jesus. He had an encounter with Christ, and it changed everything for him. You see him laying the foundation to defend the gospel. He actually he starts sharing how Christ has changed his life. I think this is practical for us. I mean, later as we get in the book, we're going to talk about what does it look like to live in grace and to live in the gospel? How does that change us? How do we practice righteousness without making it works-based? And how do we do those things? And we're going to get there. But before Paul even gets to that, he wants them to remember that a great argument for the gospel is just how he's changed. I think that's true for us. As we think about how do, I, how do I share my faith with a coworker or a friend or a family member is let them know who you were. Tell them about your BC days, your before Christ. Tell them the things you've done. Paul's like, I, I hated Christians. I was killing them. He was probably a little bit more intense about it than we were about not following Jesus. But then he goes on to share his conversion in verse 15. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son to me. He's like, God called me before I even came to Christ. He picked me in my mother's womb. He called me to a purpose to reveal his son to me so that I might preach among the Gentiles. My immediate response was not to consult any human being. It's like, I didn't go up to Jerusalem that would have mattered. That's like where the early church started. That's where Peter would have been and some of the other apostles. Um, he said, I didn't go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went to Arabia, and later I returned to Damascus. Then after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas, that's Peter, and stayed with him 15 days. So we see that there's this time period where three years have passed in Paul's life between when he came to Christ and when he meets Peter. He only talks to Peter for like 15 days, a little over two weeks. And I like to think, what did Peter do, or what did Paul do in those three years? We don't know for sure. But a lot of scholars say he just went and spent time alone with Christ. Like, that part of his life was most likely just him learning and spending time alone with God. It follows the pattern of so many people before him. It follows the pattern of even Christ with 40 days in the wilderness, fasting and hearing from God and follows the pattern of Moses and others who had set-apart times before their ministry actually started. And I think so often we want to rush. 
We, we maybe even sense what God is calling us to or know what's next and we're ready for it. We're, we've experienced this. I, I remember somebody we led to the Lord and then they were like, I am going to do this. They're like, when can I teach? And I was like, not now. Like you just came to Christ like five minutes ago. Like, you know, and that's an exaggeration, but they, they'd only been following Christ for a few months. And I'm like, you probably are called to it. Like if you're sensing that, maybe you're called to it. I was like, but there's, there's time. There's longevity. The New Testament talks about proving yourself within community and growing and, and having these things. So Paul disappears for three years, and then there's another seven years where he goes back to his hometown. This is all before he spent 10 years now. Even with the education he had and the encounter he had, there's a 10-year gap before he actually starts his missionary journeys. And he's saying, I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brothers, and I assure you before God that what I'm writing to you is no lie. He goes back before he gets to the message, before he gets to the doctrine, to being himself. This is how the gospels changed me. I think sometimes we downplay the significance of our own story. I think we downplay how much Jesus has already changed us. Maybe if we've been following him for a long time, we forget that we were different. We were not the same. It's fun because you see some of the stories, like the stories we shared last week or some of the people getting baptized, and that's why I like to be around people who just came to faith, and the gospel's so alive and so real. We remember then in the moment that what Romans says is true, that there is power in the gospel. There's power, there's, there's transformation in the good news of Jesus. And we remember what he's done in our own life and share that with somebody else, that has power. Paul lays the foundation for the rest of the book on the idea that he personally has been changed, that he's had an encounter with God. He also mentions that God's changed him for a purpose. He, he mentioned that he was chosen in the womb so that he might preach to the Gentiles. The Gentiles are just the non-Jewish people, everybody outside of the Israelites. And he's like, this is what I'm called to. And I was called to it for a long time. And God created me for that reason. And I think it's important that we don't just remember that we were different and God has changed us and is changing us, but that he's actually calling us to something. It might not be to preach to the Gentiles like Paul. It might not even have anything to do with church ministry on a Sunday, but he's called you to something. He's called you in some way and gifted you in some way. Ephesians says that he's given you gifts and that he's also prepared good works for you to do ahead of time. That he has things that he wants you to do. And that when we go and do that, part of laying the foundation for what God wants you to do is sharing your story. When's the last time you shared your testimony? It's a very like churchy thing to say, right? Like share your testimony. But when's the last time you shared your story with somebody? This is what God has done in my life. A big thing, a little thing, or, or that salvation moment. I think it's good for us to rehearse that in our mind, to remember what he's done. There's something that keeps us close to the Spirit of God when we just reflect on the gospel's power in our own life. I am not who I was. I'm not who I was a long time ago. I'm not even who I was a few months ago. The gospel's continuing to change me. It's continuing to change you. Have you ever had those moments in life where you're like, I do not know what God is doing. I don't understand this. I don't have reasons. I don't have explanations. But at some point later, you look back and you're like, oh, I see. That makes more sense now. Some of you have experienced that and some of you are still in the middle of, I don't understand. But let some of those who are in the later moments of those things remind you that you can sometimes see what God was doing as you look back. 
that you can see his faithfulness, how he weaved this story, that, that Paul, who was the greatest persecutor of the church, becomes one of the biggest proponents of the church and faced so much persecution himself. You can see how he was weaving the story the whole time. Our story is powerful. Your story can bring hope. It can, it can remind people, well, if, if God did that in their life, he can do it in mine. If he freed them from that addiction or if he freed them from that problem or if he, he fixed that relationship, then he can, he can do that in my life. The gospel needs to both be lived and shared. That you can't fully separate the message and the messenger. None of us are perfect. All of us fall short. I, I mess up regularly. But the good news of Galatians is that we're called back to grace. That's where we go back to to move forward. And it reminds us, as Paul lays out the beginning arguments, is that our life matters. The way we live it and share our story impacts other people. And we're going to get into the theological aspects of that, the reasons that it's all just by grace and how he changes us. But first, Paul's like, guys, trust me. I'm not doing anything other than trying to love you well. He's like, I'm not trying to please people. I'm trying to please God. I'm inviting you back to grace. This is how he's changed me. I was once this person. I'm now this person. There's power in the gospel. There's power in remembering the grace of God. I think it's helpful just to slow down and reflect on the ways that God has changed you. I think so often we can get frustrated thinking, why haven't you changed me in this way yet? Or why am I struggling here? I want breakthrough in this area. I'm waiting on this thing. That so often we only look forward and we forget how far God's already brought us. There's something powerful about remembering that grace. When that grace is near, the, the love you feel towards God is just different. When you are so aware of your need for him, you can't help but just be thankful. When I feel like I've kind of got it going on and I'm in good rhythms and I'm doing all the things that I'm supposed to be doing, I, I sometimes feel like I'm almost more distant. And it's not that my sin makes me close to God. It's just my realization of my need for him makes me close to God. So being in good rhythms and spending time in the word and praying and fasting and, and loving and serving and all the things we're called to do are good. But even in that, remembering it's still grace. It's grace that's brought you there. And it's grace that will sustain you there. It's all undeserved favor in our life. I want to pray for us. God, as we journey into the book of Galatians, would you help us to have a bigger picture of grace, a bigger picture of your undeserved favor, a bigger picture of what Jesus has done for us. God, would the gospel become all the more real? God, as we study what it truly is, would it be easier to see what it's not? We thank you for the work you've done in our life. God, would you use us to share that, that goodness, that grace with others? God, would we remember who we were and remember who you're calling us to and remember that you've called us for a purpose, to make a difference, to share the good news of Jesus, to use our gifts. 
Would you bring us back to grace as we move forward in relationship with you? In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this week's podcast. We would love to hear about what God is doing in your life. To share your story or a prayer request, simply hit contact on our website. You can also support the ministry of Hope Culture Church by visiting hopeculturechurch.com give. We hope you have a great week.